0: Never be the one who says, I have no idea. Unlock the full picture and get unlimited access to unique data and respected business journalism that advances your understanding and business. Subscribe today at housingwire.com membership.
1: HousingWire Daily examines the most compelling mortgage, real estate, and fintech articles reported from the HousingWire newsroom. Each afternoon, the HW Digital team provides our listeners with a deeper look into the stories that are helping move markets forward. Hosted and produced by Alcina Lloyd and Victoria Wickham. And now, here's our host. from the hottest topics
0: coming across our news desk, I'm Victoria Wickham and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today you'll be listening to a housing news crossover episode that features an interview with Framework Homeownership CEO Danielle Samolin. In this episode, Samolin discusses the importance of fair housing and how homeowners can protect their biggest and most valuable investment toward wealth creation. But before we listen, here's a brief word on HousingWire's newest
1: podcast. Right now, more than ever, the housing industry has been having honest conversations about how race impacts the home buying process. To heighten the discussion, HousingWire is launching Honest Conversations, a new mini podcast series to examine the state of minority home ownership in America. For eight weeks starting in february please join housing wire daily each wednesday as we aim to provide listeners with a greater perspective on how race housing and wealth intersect and what experts are doing to close the home ownership gap
0: welcome everyone this is sarah wheeler editor-in-chief at housingwire with the latest episode of our housing news podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Danielle Samelin, who is the CEO of Framework Homeownership. Danielle is an expert on housing policies and their effects on communities of color. As an organization targeting first time and first generation homeowners, Framework has provided home buyer education, resources, and tools to over 1 million homeowners across the country. So Danielle, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, We're we're so excited you're here. You know, the first question we always ask on Housing News is, how did you get into this industry? It's not something that is the same for everyone, and we always love to hear everyone's story on that.
2: Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about that. You know, for me, I think it does go back um, sort of to my personal history. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I am a fourth-generation New Yorker, so that means my Great grandparents came through Eastern Europe to Ellis Island in the early 1900s, sort of the the immigrant story that so many New Yorkers um, in particular share. And both sides of my family were working class New Yorkers. My dad grew up in a housing project in the Bronx, and my mom grew up in a tiny rental apartment above a storefront that was deep in the heart of Brooklyn on a major thoroughfare. And um, So both of my parents, my mother and my father, are artists, and in the 1970s, when my mother was pregnant with me, and uh, New York City was basically just emerging from bankruptcy, they had an opportunity to buy a house, but they didn't, (laughs) they did not buy. At the time, in the 70s, rent was cheap, and they didn't have any money, they didn't have any financial support from their parents, and so really, uh, why in the world would they buy? And why in the world would someone buy a home in Brooklyn, (laughs) to be specific? And so (laughs) you can't not laugh to hear my sad personal story. Um, Fast forward to today, and, you know, it's obvious that this was not the best financial decision. Um, Ultimately, my parents rented in Brooklyn for 30 years. And then, Uh, they were displaced. They were displaced by gentrification, like so many artists are. And so for me, I've always been this kind of um, strange social scientist in, in a family of artists and creative types. I studied economics in school. I went to graduate school for urban planning. And That was at NYU in New York City. So I had this opportunity to be in grad school in my hometown in the early 2000s that was going through so much change and transition. And it was really quite fascinating. And again, the personal and the professional intersected for me. I I felt the change in New York personally because it was during that time that my parents were displaced. And I found myself sitting in in urban design classes in grad school and saying to myself, what is a city without the diversity of its people, the economic diversity, the racial diversity of its people? And so that got me in my master's program to study on uh, community development and, and to learn about the human beings that live in the buildings we were discussing in the urban design classes, the, the humans that use the transportation, et cetera. And so, it was also around that time that I was connected to a credit union in, in Bushwick in Brooklyn. This was a predominantly immigrant neighborhood, and the credit union wanted to create a mortgage program for this largely unbanked community. Um, you know, there were there was one bank in the in the neighborhood, but but it was new. It was a new bank branch. And um, at the time there was a mortgage broker and he would set up a folding table. This is very real. (laughs) He would set up a folding table in the local laundromat on Myrtle Avenue. And he would say, get a mortgage while you fold your clothes. No docs required. And and you fast forward, of course, to 2008. And we saw the impact of such predatory practices when taken to scale, um, this Wild West of mortgages. And and for me, what tied my parents' story to that story was the connection to information. It was about information and who has access to that information, the information that can help you decide whether to buy a home or not to buy a home. And, you know, when you see that the primary way for lower income families to build wealth is ripe with real information asymmetry, To me, this was a story about social justice and really the need for deep systems change about wealth building and also housing stability and affordability, who gets to stay when cities change, who's forced to leave and who can afford it. So that's how I found myself in this space. I think the housing affordability challenge is a supply issue. Of course, we need more affordable homes, but for me, I saw increasing access on the demand side, also as critical, you know, what can we do to ensure that first time and really especially first generation homebuyers, gain access to information about the primary way they can build wealth so they can make their decisions with confidence. And, and so here I am, <laughs> that's, that's how I think, you know I think in, in many ways I'm here, not because at age 10, I said I wanted to be the CEO of a social enterprise Called framework that provides education and tools for homebuyers and homeowners. But because of my personal history, I did find myself in this in this role in this industry.
0: That, that's a really fascinating intersection of the personal and 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 now your professional life, right? I think that's really interesting and and funny for me because I have two kids who are artists living in Bushwick right now.
2: <laughs> and, <laughs>
0: yeah. It's just crazy and i agree with you um, i i like the fact that um, you know your work is really looking at why or or the you know the quality behind that so not just building buildings but who are the people occupying those and what does that lend to the character of the city it's so fascinating to me okay. so we you know with with the new biden administration we've definitely seen a real focus on um, affordable housing in a way that we haven't in a while and and he's taken quick action so you know he he's clearly made addressing housing discrimination and fair housing a priority in light of his recent executive order what are some changes you expect to see.
2: yeah so I I was certainly among those who celebrated the significance of President Biden's executive order. Um, you know, this was the first time the federal government formally acknowledged the role it played in the history of housing discrimination in, in this country. And truly, the federal government did design and implement a racial segregation program under the New Deal. And, and, and it has had lasting impact. You know, from the 1930s through the 1960s, 98 percent of federal housing administration, so FHA loans went to white families. And that provided a critical wealth building foundation for future generations that non-white families simply did not have. So this is historical fact, and yet so few people know about this, um, at this critical moment in American history that changed so many people's trajectories. And I think that by articulating this so clearly in that executive order without defensiveness, it really does signal and openness to policy shift and to new approaches that promote equitable wealth building through homeownership
0: well you know um I should, I should probably preface it I mean why don't you tell us you know a little bit about that executive order just a, a brief summary because people may not be aware of it there's there's been a lot going on <laughs> people are really busy and and uh, it's definitely something we've covered but i I would just love for you to just briefly so what was the executive order
2: um so I think that People should read it. It's very short. Um, and you know, and in it, the administration essentially acknowledges the, the systemic racism, first of all, acknowledges systemic racism is inherent in the housing market, and also acknowledges the, the its deep roots in federal policy. The New Deal was a response to the Great Depression, um, and in in so many ways um really brought the country out and we think of it as as very positive but what i've learned in my um education and my work you know there are unintended consequences of almost all policies um and intent and impact are two different things um i think that what what is really important for for people to know is that when the new deal essentially commodified the mortgage. So I talk about it, you know, before that, there certainly were mortgages before the great depression, but really at that moment in time at 1934, that was when the, the idea of a middle-class homeowner really came to be. And when the idea of using a mortgage to buy a house, um, became m- more, more standard practice. And Unfortunately, um, what went into uh, the decisions around who had access to those mortgages was ripe with racism because the the lending decisions were based on these maps that um, were developed by the Homeowners Loan Corporation that um, designated certain neighborhoods as undesirable. And so the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, used those maps to determine who would get a federally insured mortgage. And what the Biden administration did was it acknowledged that history in the executive order and committed itself to working towards dismantling that systemic racism that is inherent in the in the mortgage industry that, and that the federal government was not an innocent bystander at all, and in fact, an active participant in um, creating white homeownership. Um, so I think that it is really worth a read. And I think that the devil will be, you know, in the details of how policy and practice responds to the executive order. Um, you know, I think that the, the fact is the racial wealth gap. Which is driven by this homeownership gap is at its widest since the 1960s. So, more than 50 years after the Fair Housing Act, housing discrimination is disturbingly common. So, with the executive order, I think that there is no doubt that the administration has certainly signaled a commitment to the better enforcement of, of fair housing and fair lending laws that are already on the books. Um, you know, really making sure that those laws are enforced. But also, I think we, we need, and I hope to see, policy interventions that really promote sustainability through times of crisis, for example, like the one we're in right now with the global pandemic um, and its economic impact, and then, you know, policies and, and, and interventions that focus on closing the racial homeownership and wealth gap, so that we can actually see um, an impactful difference. This is truly um, a holistic approach that's needed not just to enforce policies and laws that are already on the books around fair housing, but also really looking at the entire ecosystem and how we all play a role and perhaps can all work together, I hope, to come up with creative solutions to make, to make change that is impactful and closes that gap.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you said, it was a really striking statement and I'm hopeful for people who are looking at this. At this problem, um, uh, it's something that we've really uh, looked at as a coverage area and have, have committed ourselves to covering over the last year and, and going forward. Um, and Alcena, who is our digital producer, who is on this, um, she's actually our, our media manager, who's on uh, helping us produce this podcast, just started a, a podcast called Honest Conversations to really talk about that gap in in uh, home ownership. Among Black homeowners, so it, it's something that I think was really interesting that he came out with. To your point, now what are the actions that are going to follow that is really going to be the the interesting thing to see. And um, kind of diving in a little bit, what what is the role, in your opinion, of of nonprofit nonprofit housing counseling during a housing crisis? I mean, you talked about education as as really key to to seeing what that difference made in that community uh, of Bushwick and with your parents. So so, what do you think the role of That housing counseling is right now.
2: Well, um, in in the 2008 housing crisis, and I'll I'll go back there because I think that was when we really saw how the nonprofit housing counseling industry was called to action like never before, and um, how critical its role was, and it can still be, and should still be. So, you know, in 2008, servicers and mortgage investors you know, quickly saw that housing counselors were able to make contact with borrowers much more easily than they were. Um, And so outreach efforts where servicers would partner with housing counselors took off very quickly. Um, The role that housing counselors played as trusted advisors was really made impeccably clear during that crisis. And, and so between 2007 and 2012, my role uh, was to support a network of organizations that were responding directly to the crisis, which meant two homeowners who were either at risk of becoming delinquent or were already delinquent. They worked this network with hundreds of thousands of homeowners in crisis who were contacting them instead of contacting their servicer. These are community-based groups. These are, were sometimes more regional-focused groups, but with branches throughout different cities or counties. And it really was a tsunami of foreclosures. Uh, and the organizations that I supported had to ramp up very fast to provide services and to interface with the mortgage industry in new ways. And they also had to access funding sources to do this. And that was really my role. My role at that time was to support those organizations so they could access federal funds that were made available in response to the crisis. And, and it was really at that time, a uh, framework emerged out of, out of that crisis as a, as a way to reach consumers at scale, because we saw how critically important It was to have that trusted advisor and and actually research from the urban Institute found that in that crisis, the borrowers who had counseling housing counseling from a nonprofit counselor were 67% more likely to be current after nine months than homeowners who did not have housing counseling. There was some real value in this nonprofit counseling that was found through research that came out of the the crisis. I guess one silver lining of having so many millions of people that were touched was that we were able to research it. We were able to demonstrate value at scale. And what we find now as, um, you know, the pandemic, the, the COVID pandemic is very different Type of crisis, and you know that the the, the two thousand seven two thousand eight crisis was a direct result of those lending practices that I referred to earlier. While this is a public health crisis, a global health crisis, however, it has this economic impact, and what we don't want to see is somebody forced to decide between. You know, paying their mortgage or paying for food or paying for something else. And in any economic crisis of this scale and scope, we might see that. And, and what we're finding at Framework now is that we, we are connected to a partnership network of close to 200 nonprofit housing counseling providers. And what we know is that we have to leverage that partnership model in order to have the most effective impact In diverse markets uh, during this economic crisis and and that's because we're talking about outreach to the most vulnerable populations of homeowners and so. You know I have been really pleased with how quickly the mortgage finance industry has responded to the housing implications of uh, of the coronavirus pandemic and you know, making forbearance available, but of course. People don't know what they don't know. And as, as, as I mentioned in the beginning of, of this conversation, Sarah, you know, this idea of information asymmetry, this idea of not even knowing that a forbearance program might be available to you, that is the first place where housing counselors can play a critical role in making sure that people who need it have access to that information. And they are a trusted, unbiased third party. And we should certainly, I think, as an industry, the mortgage ecosystem should learn those lessons not forget those lessons of the 2008 crisis and really i think look to the nonprofit housing counseling space again to um to reach people and to make sure they know what what options are available to them and how to ensure that people don't face foreclosure as a result because they really don't have to they really don't they shouldn't have to and so Um, I I, I really, I really, I hope that people remember um, the lessons from the last crisis. And I, I think it seems as though it seems as though um, the mortgage industry does remember that, you know, not only is it critically important to be proactive about reaching homeowners early, but also that the nonprofit housing counseling industry is there to support that.
0: To listen to the full conversation, head over to the Housing News Podcast, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing HousingWire Daily as we wrap up this week's news coverage. As always, we like to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Have a great weekend and catch everyone back here again on Monday.